Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It's a pleasure to have a loyal rambler on the show for a change. It is great to be here. I appreciate uh, appreciate you inviting me. And I love the diploma from Booth in the background as well. I mean, I think we're just, this is going to be a very Homer podcast. <laughs> like you're just going to get a ton of softballs thrown your way. <laughs> yeah, the Booth, uh, the Booth diploma is prominent. You know, my wife's in there somewhere too, um, you know, but yeah, we have a good representation between my wife and I. Um, so obviously we have a bit more context on your educational background from that opener, but I think we'd love to hear a bit more about your professional background. Um, what led you to venture capital and, uh, some of the stops you made along the way? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to when I graduated from Booth. So graduated from Booth in 2005, my first job post Booth was working for the Tribune company in their interactive decision or their interactive division. And uh, the goal was to basically transition Tribune and their newspapers into the digital world. Um, needless to say, you know, 15, 20 years later, they're still making that transition and, and struggling with it. I was there for um, just under five years, worked with some great people at Tribune. Um, and then back in 2008, 2009, the, the, uh, the recession that was occurring, I wanted to do something different. Tribune had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, had the epiphany that it'd be better to work for a um, fast growing company than a Chapter 11 bankrupt company. And really just at that point in time, I wanted to be in technology, wanted to be in a smaller environment. And if you think about that time, there was no Twitter, there was no built in Chicago, like the, the echo chamber that exists today about startups just didn't exist. And so in 2009, I basically said, you know, I need to understand who the leading technology companies are within Chicago. And the only way to do that is just by, by hustling. And so I basically said, you know, people are going to know who I am um, within the Chicago technology community for better or for worse. Um, I reached out to um, a gentleman by the name of Dick Costello, who sold his company to Google and eventually became CEO of Twitter saying, I need to get out of Tribune. You know, you've been working in a smaller environment. You've had some success. Who do you suggest I speak with? He connected me with Lon Chow and Matt McCall. Matt McCall connected me with Troy Hennikoff. And then the tree of networking in Chicago just kind of branched out from there. Through that process, I got connected to, you know, Matt Maloney and Mike Evans at Grubhub in, you know, 2010. Got to know both of those guys went into the office, met with both of them, said, um, you know, how much are you doing in revenue? They said, we're going to be doing about, you know, 8 million in revenue. Uh, I said, is that GMV or net? They said, that's net revenue. Uh, and I, how many markets are you in? They're only in Chicago. I, I had no inclination that they would be what they've become today, but I knew that there was upside there, um, given that 8 million is nice revenue um, in one market. And so I joined Grubhub as their vice president of business development as part of their executive leadership team back in August of 2010. Uh, I was there for five years doing a variety of things, partnerships, did some M&A, was part of the team that launched delivery for the company. And so an amazing run. 
Uh, I left there in uh, the back half of 2015. I transitioned into a smaller entity here in Chicago called Geophedia um, and was part of that leadership team and was there for a very short period of time. Geophedia had some challenges, learned quite a bit um, there. And then I transitioned to consulting and helping kind of QSR and, and fast casual delivery uh, companies launch delivery. So I did some work for Krispy Kreme Donuts, um, allowing people to get donuts delivered to them from the comfort of their own homes. So between maybe Grubhub wow, That is and- so dangerous. I'm sorry. That is Krispy uh, Kreme donuts delivered to the comfort of your home. That is, yeah. That's just dangerous right there. For, for sure. And so, you know, that was a fantastic experience. Spent a lot of time in Winston-Salem, North Carolina with that executive team. And between Grubhub and Krispy Kreme, um, you know, I, I felt like I needed to serve my penance and move toward kind of a, a healthy, a healthier, more sustainable food ecosystem and, you know, uh, joined Evolve. And I had known Bill Pescatello for quite some time because I looked at venture opportunities upon leaving Grubhub, um, toyed with potentially joining Lightbank as a partner at one point in time. So Bill and I got to know each other. He knew my passion for food and technology and asked me if I wanted to, you know, join him on this journey to launch a venture fund within Kraft Heinz. To me, it was an absolute no-brainer. And so it's been a phenomenal experience. So we're a team of four operating mostly out of Kraft Heinz's headquarters, but over the course of the last year and a half, um, our respective homes. And we invest all across the food value chain. So the fund's $100 million and you know, we invest in food tech, um, sustainability, e-commerce, and industrial technologies are kind of our core focus areas. That is quite the illustrious background. And I think it's incredible that you got to spend time at one of the fastest and most successful, fastest growing and most successful Chicago companies of the 21st century. I think I have to start there. Um, you mentioned that you knew there was upside, but nobody knew how big it could be. You know, when you were joining Grubhub, what was kind of at the time, where did you think the company could go in the most bull case scenario? And, and yeah. how were you really surprised over the years there? Yeah, I'll tell you a great story, which I think speaks to the belief that founders have in their own companies from Matt Maloney. So the second day I joined Grubhub, um, we had a meeting with a company called Radiant Systems, which was a fairly large point of sale company out of Atlanta. They got bought by NCR. And I was in this meeting. Mike and Matt said, you know, hey, why don't you join this meeting? It'll be a great opportunity for you to learn more about the business. And it was the CEO of Radiant. Through that conversation, they made a, um, uh, an inquiry to buy the company. Second day at, at, at Grubhub, right? And I go home that night. I tell my wife, you know, I might be working for Radiant sooner. Um, I thought my, my, my stint at Grubhub might be short-lived. I might be a Radiant Systems employee. And um, over the course of the next couple of days, uh, they submitted an acquisition offer, which I think was about $66 million at the time. And I think the current valuation was somewhere, I want to say around 10. So a pretty healthy, you know, step up um, for shareholders, for sure. And, and Grubhub, needless to say, turned it down. And I'll never forget this. I asked Matt, I said, well, why, what, what was it that drove you to turn down the offer? And, you know, he said, Steve, you know, we're going to be a billion dollar company someday. Um, and that belief and conviction that founders have in their business 
those are the people that you want to be alongside of in that journey. Because for him to say that, there was a little part of me like, hey, Matt, I know it's going to be big, but I don't know, a billion. I don't, I mean, I've only been here five days. You know, we'll see. Um, and he said the same thing when we were valued at a billion. And he said, we're going to be a $5 billion company. And he was spot on. And I'll never forget that. It makes him look like an absolute genius and a fortune teller, right, about the success of the company. But just that conviction in the business and the future potential was un unbelievable. And so to be a part of that was so rewarding. And needless to say, it was that moment I, I, knew, I knew that I made the right decision to join Grubhub. That's incredible. That's incredible. I mean, echoes of Zuckerberg turning down Yahoo's offer right there. I think it's it's stories like these that almost become myth and legend when it's all said and done about the founders. I, I'm curious now, your role as a VC, that conviction that Matt had, is that something that you, I'd imagine it's something you want to see, even with these, you know, seed stage, you know, series A companies, how, how do you prod for that conviction uh, amongst the founders you're interviewing or you're getting pitches from? How do you try to assess uh, founders at large? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, a lot of it is similar to kind of how I assess the, the, the Grubhub opportunity. I think with founders, you know, what you're looking for is, it's going to sound cliche, but, you know, can they raise money? Can they attract talent? Can they articulate the vision for the company, Right. And I think that the vision for the company, I think, is super important and something that I really lean in on. Like, you know, A, am I going to enjoy working with you, right? It's cliche, but super important. And vice versa, are they going to enjoy working with me? But like, paint me the picture. Like, I'm not investing now, but I'm investing like five years from now. Like, what does that picture look like? And does that get me excited? You know, and sometimes, you know, I'm the one probably on our Evolve Ventures team where, you know, my colleagues need to check me because I will say there's businesses that I get super fired up about. And I'm like, this company is going to be doing X. And then, you know, Bill, Bill Pescatel and, and Smriti J. Raman, they'll, they'll, they'll keep me in check and be like, but Steve, that's not the company today. Right. Like that's not at all what they're doing today. So like you have to believe that they'll be there in the future, but we have to assess the business for what it is today. And so I think that's the biggest thing. And I think just pattern recognition. I've been fortunate to like interact with a lot of I've always been kind of extrovert versus an introvert. And so just kind of pattern recognition dealing with people, you're able to pick up on little idios idiosyncrasies that you couldn't otherwise that I certainly lean on when I'm chatting with founders and entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think, I think I love that too. There's, there's the crystal ball looking into the future and what will this business be and kind of backcasting. And, and there's actually the pragmatic view of, okay, what is it today? Does it have the right ingredients? Does it have the yeah. tools? You know, what's it, what's it done so far? I think it sounds like you guys have a great team that can all sort of keep each other centered on, you know, the task at hand. Um, I, I, I have to ask though, just looking at your background, you know, time spent at Grubhub, your experiences with biz dev and consulting, what was it that drew you to investing? Um, so away from sort of being operationally involved with these companies on a day-to-day -day business, which I'm sure you guys still are in some respect at Evolve, um, you know, as board members, et cetera. But what drew you to the investing portion of venture capital? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I, I think for me, the role that I played at Grubhub you know, I've always been, I think, really good at connecting the dots about where things are going. Like I've done a self-assessment um, and I've 
what comes up as futurist and a and a and very strategically oriented are the two that kind of jump out for me for my personality traits. And so I've always been I've always loved kind of connecting the dots. And I did that quite a bit at Grubhub, right? In terms of delivery, really understanding, okay, well, we have this marketplace, but consumer demands, you know, they want more selection, more choice. How do we bring on more restaurants that don't have their own delivery capabilities to enable more choice for consumers? And so I just saw that because we hung our hat on, we have the biggest selection and I saw other companies entering that world that had more restaurants on their platform. And I just saw where things were going. Like, how do we get into point of sale systems? How can we leverage the data from all of our transactions that we process? So I've always been kind of a, you know, what could something be in the future versus today? I've always been passionate about venture. Like I remember reading... Uh, the book E-Boys way back in the day, which is a phenomenal book about the early days of benchmark capital. You know, at, at Grubhub, you know, Bill Gurley was on the board who I'm certainly a Bill Gurley fanboy, and, and have read everything on Above the Crowd and sat next to him when I was attending board meetings or board dinners just to try to gleam something by osmosis by being next to, by being next to Bill. And so, like, I always love kind of connecting the dots and predicting where things will go versus, you know, I just knew my limitations. I like operating, but like I'm not and I'm in the weeds with our portfolio companies. I certainly have that that muscle that I that I flex, but I'm just more on the investment side and always have been from very early yeah. on. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And I think. You know, there's a lot of people, and I think listeners to the show who are either, you know, getting their MBA, fresh out of college, um, trying to figure out what's the next step for them in their career. And many of them are looking at or do ultimately go into business development roles at early stage companies. And you had a great blog piece a few years ago about the role of a business development rep um, at a startup or, you know, at, at any enterprise for that matter. Um, how should you know, new graduates, how should new employees in that role, how should they be spending their time? You know, what's, what's some great advice that you've gleaned over the years at, from your experiences that you would give to them as they start this new kind of endeavor? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, Matt, in, in that post, one of the things I called out is that, that the term business development has become somewhat watered down. You know, I think probably I would say um, in 2016, business development, I was very strategically oriented at, at Grubhub. I think business development is somewhat morphed into pure sales. It's a sexier term for sales, right? It's not sales, but you're doing, you're doing business development, right? Um, to get people really excited. That to me is a little bit of a, of a misnomer. You know, you see roles such as kind of chief strategy officer and things of that nature that have a little bit of that business development capability. But for me, I, I think that strategy, it's kind of how do you how do you utilize your you know scarce resources is how I always viewed it, right? And for Grubhub, you know, I think it was, I knew the levers that were really important for the company, right? Like distribution, right? We looked at doing deals with Yelp and, and other platforms. Delivery, um, you know, in that case, it was, we tested delivery at Grubhub with TaskRabbit in San Francisco that a lot of people don't know about. Um, we literally just sent the email that would go to the consumer to 
a rabbit at, in San Francisco to pick up the order and deliver it to the consumer. That was the first iteration of delivery at Grubhub. And, you know, it was ungodly expensive in San Francisco, but it showed demand um, and it validated that we were on the right path. And so that to me, I, I think that the more you can be a thought leader for executives about where are the untapped opportunities, because when you're really in the operating role, your head's down, you know, you're hitting your goals for the quarter or the year. It's good to take a step back and think about how you can leverage the assets in, in new and unique ways that can create value. And I, I feel like that's always been one of my strengths. Yeah, and I and I think it's so true. Uh, in our entrepreneurial selling class last year, actually at Booth, they talked about that convergence of the biz dev role into effectively sales. But it's it's interesting. The post was from a year, few years ago, and we'll link it in the show notes. I still I think it's extremely illuminating for anyone who's entering into that sort of early stage realm and and looking to strategically build out a startup's customer base footprint, etc. Um, I'd love to focus in a bit on evolve. Um, you know, I think, as you mentioned, you guys are Kraft Heinz's corporate VC fund. I'd love if you could just, you know, walk us through some of the differences in your mind between a corporate venture capital arm and a regular venture capital arm. And from your experience, you know, what have been some of the benefits of working mm -hmm. with Kraft Heinz? I'm sure there has to be so many, but we'd love to hear about that. Yeah, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll tee it up by talking about the corporate venture capital world. There, there, there tends to be, when corporates... Uh, start a venture capital group, they tend to operate on a spectrum. On the one end, you have, you know, focused on financial ROI. And the other is, do the investments provide a strategic benefit to our company, right? I firmly believe that if you're going to be operating in a corporate world, you need to have a balance of both. And that's been our experience. Um, we tend to be a little bit more financially oriented, but we tend to sit in the middle to me, there's nothing strategic about investing in a company that goes bankrupt. Um, so we feel like we need to be right in the middle. Um, and the fund was structured that way. And so I think some of it is really how the fund is set up. Our fund is a little bit unique in the corporate venture capital world in that our team has an incentive structure akin to a traditional financial venture capital firm because our team members have carry on the deals that we invest in. And... Um, Bill and I have put our own personal capital into the fund, which is very rare for a, a corporate venture capital group. Most of the people within the corporate venture capital world are, you know, comps, you know, base and bonus. Um, and they try to put in terms such as rofers and things of that nature. So we don't do that. We have an incentive to maximize our capital that's in the fund. Um, and so, you know, we look for that balance of strategic benefit to Kraft Heinz and financial ROI. We do leverage Kraft Heinz to help us diligence opportunities. It's the fifth largest food and beverage company in the world. We feel like we have unique insight that others don't have that allows us to play with um, a stack deck, if you will, when we're assessing investment opportunities. Because I can go to our R&D group. We work closely with the functional areas of Kraft Heinz to say, hey, listen, these are the startups that we met with, irrespective of if we're going to invest in them or not. Here's, here's potential companies that may be, in, may be helpful for you to solve a business challenge. If it's something we want to invest in, even better. So that gives us some insight, and we've certainly leveraged that um, quite a bit. 
And in terms of difference from financial VC, I've articulated them. Some of them is really about compensation structure. There's a speed element. We like to think we move quickly, but we still have our governance processes. You still have that on the financial VC side, but you know, getting the CEO, the CFO, and a board member of our investment committee together is not something I can be like, do you guys have time later today? Right? So that gets to be a little bit tricky. And for you personally, you know, we talked a little bit about the areas of focus at Evolve. What are kind of your sort of categories that interest you the most or that you spend the most time on? Yeah, I mean, the, the categories where I spend the bulk of my time are really um, four categories. So I lead our team's efforts within food tech. So within food tech, the focus is on alternative proteins. Um, so meat, uh, dairy, uh, better for you ingredients. Um, we look at R&D enabling technologies quite a bit. So are there technologies out there that can help our R&D teams develop products cheaper, faster? Um, and then we're also looking quite a bit at food as medicine concepts. And I also spend the time on um, sustainable packaging. So how do we get rid of, you know, pack plastic, right? And craft, you know, the ketchup sachets. Do we have, you know, is there a technology that allows those to be dissolvable? compostable um, and the themes that we really invest off of within that category are um, sustainability, climate change, right? Is impacting our society and our food ecosystem. Um, secondly, health and wellness. Millennials care more about health and wellness than um, prior generations. And so are we investing in those best in class companies or enabling technologies and, you know, animal welfare, to a certain extent, because that ties in with climate change, um, you know, cows and burping up methane. Um, and so those are, you know, those are some of the key themes and AI and ML um, is something we lean into quite a bit where we see those technologies that can really impact some of the categories that I mentioned. AI ML, for example, is that an area where, you know, you see a startup that you think is interesting, but maybe you know, you want to vet the technology a little bit. You want to vet the use case. And and is that an area where you can leverage Kraft yeah. Heinz's in-house data science team? And that's how you all can come to conviction? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I got to kind of keep it somewhat broad because the deal is not closed. But there's a company that is using um, machine learning to develop unique um, ingredients and cultures using data and AI, right? So you can add it to a milk to develop, um, you know, a, a plant-based cheese that has a better texture and mouthfeel, for example, right? That's a company that Kraft Heinz has been engaged with, right? So we're able to kind of validate it internally. So if I know it's validated by, you know, Kraft Heinz, good chance that, you know, it will be um, applicable to other companies our size as well. So that's just a prime example of how we can leverage the, uh, the broader Kraft Heinz organization to assess these opportunities. Is there a method in which you are also able to leverage them for deal sourcing? And does it ever occur where they see an early stage company in a particular vertical and they bring the company to you and say, hey, this is an interesting, this is an interesting value prop. I think maybe this could be a strategic acquisition one day, but we'd love to invest first and help them grow. I mean, is it, does that ever occur as well? 
Rare, rare. I would say most of it is coming from us to the broader organization. Um, it's, it's improved. There are a few things that are coming from the organization to us, but I would say that it's mostly our own sourcing. And, you know, the, the organization is heads down, right, on their quarterly goals. So, you know, for us, it gets back to like we're able to stop and think and see the broader landscape and how these startups may address the Kraft Heinz challenge. Um, and so they're just heads down. And so when they see things, we're able to be like, hey, this is a company that has three people in it. I don't think that they're going to solve our problem. Oh, thanks, Steve. That's helpful. I don't need to spend more time on it. Right. And so that's the value that we provide. We just want to be corporate citizens. So, like I said, we'll we'll highlight startups where we don't feel like it's a valid investment opportunity for whatever reason to the right individuals within Kraft Heinz, just because we need to drive innovation within the, within the company. Makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. No, I think this is a, you know, a very plain question, but I, I find I get some great answers out of it, but we're still in the throes of it would appear a pandemic that does not seem to be going away anytime soon. And I know in particular, all of your sectors of focus have gone through, I'm sure so much change. So maybe it's hard to pick one trend or one theme that you found most interesting throughout this pandemic. But I have to ask, is there a theme or a trend that as this pandemic sort of continues that you find extremely interesting and that you've been following and hopefully want to make an investment into one day? Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's a few different themes. I think when you look at um, the pandemic and its impacts, like the meat sector has been completely upended, right? Like JBS and, and Tyson and some of those folks, you know, last year was highlighted due to supply chain disruptions, amongst other things. So, and I think when you see climate change, right, as well, a massive report came out a couple of weeks ago about the impacts of climate change and how things in our society needs to need to change to slow that slow that progress. Um, and then COVID, obviously, health and wellness. I think there's such a concern right now amongst consumers about, you know, what am I putting in my body? Right. Like, you know, the food is medicine concept comes up quite a bit. We want to do more in that category. We haven't done anything to date, but I would say that, you know, that's something we want to lean into hard. Where it's like, how do we think is how do we think of food as medicine that can address, you know, broader societal health challenges, right? We've invested in a, a, a company that's providing alternatives to sugar. That's one way. Everybody defines food as medicine a little bit differently. It could be eating more plant-based products. Um, but that's something, too, where you're going to be seeing more and more there. And I think you're going to see insurers start to get in this game where it's kind of, hey, I'm going to pay you to eat a healthier diet. And we've done the underwriting on it. I think you're going to see more, especially for people, you know, individuals that are coming out of the hospital. You're going to see more and more of that, I feel like, over the next couple of years. That's going to evolve. This category of food as medicine, I mean, you know, you spent time at Grubhub, obviously, in the mid 2010s, and you mentioned millennials kind of preference for healthier food. I just when did you realize in the past 10 years, I do feel like there's been a tectonic shift towards healthier, better for you food. And I'm sure your knowledge of this has only grown since you joined Evolve. But was there a time when you were at Grubhub where you kind of noticed this trend, this shift or 
Is it something you've noticed in the past 10 years in different ways? Just curious about your sort of overall thoughts on, you know, that sort of shift towards better for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed it more broadly, but I think it's really come into focus over the last few years, just being at Evolve and seeing the the and seeing the innovation that's occurring. You know, I mean, consumers just want to eat better. It's very different, right? And I, I hear the term quite a bit of like personalized food. Quite a bit is there food that's specifically tailored to you? Um, you know, you and I may have ninety nine percent of the same DNA. But, you know, the bacteria in our gut microbiome might be different. So, you know, you and I could eat the same things, but you may have a very different reaction than than I do. I feel like what I just described is not that far away. Um, you know, it's that the some of these things have been tainted because of, you know, there's companies. It's almost like a 23andMe for food a little bit. You're seeing some companies that are, I think, selling a little bit of snake oil here, which has kind of tainted that world a little bit. But I do think that you're going to see an evolution of technologies that your diet should include this because you behave differently than, you know, someone else eating the same food. It, to me, it's really when versus if. And, and when you find a startup in this particular theme or, or thesis that interests you and, and you all make an investment, what does that relationship with Evolve look like post-investment? You know, what type of assistance um, or, or operational assistance can Evolve provide to startups? How involved do you all like to get uh, with your startups? Just curious about that front. Yeah, I think from a uh, from a team perspective, we, we've tended to be a little bit stage agnostic on the deals that I've done. They typically are Series A. So I'm on the board of New Culture, which is using biotechnology and fermentation to make animal free dairy cheese. And I'm also on the board of Joywell Foods, which is, you know, using biotech and fermentation to make alternatives to sugar. Um, I think my team would agree, like, I'm the most hands on of the team with our portfolio companies, because um, when you have a seed company. Um, there's a lot of handholding and they're in the midst of kind of a series A fundraise. So I'm talking to the CEO like every day. Um, and then the case of Joywell, the company went through a CEO change earlier this year. And so that takes a lot of time. So, you know, um, my other team members are very busy with their portfolio companies, but I feel like I'm in the weeds. Um, they're up here. I'm like down here. Um which has been great, you know, and I love being side by side with the with the founders. And you know, we work. You know, it sounds like a cliche, but you know, our customers are real, our portfolio companies, and so you know, they know that they can count on me. And so, you know, I'm I'm very hands on. And I think with the broader companies with Kraft Heinz, it's really cultivating those relationships, right, um, between the startup and Kraft Heinz. At some point, it may make more sense than others. Um, depending on where that company is along in their entrepreneurial journey. But, you know, that's something that we focus on as well is how do we connect these startups with Kraft Heinz, given our expertise, where there's mutually beneficial opportunities for both companies. I, I, and again, I think it's just the, the number of strategic advantages you all have being under the umbrella of Kraft Heinz. It's the list just keeps going. I curious about, as you step back and look at the overall landscape of venture capital in 2021, and maybe since you joined Evolve, um, would you say there's been more and more corporate venture capital arms springing up, not even just in food and, and retail, but 
at large, would you say there's been more and more of these funds being raised in house in these corporate VCs? And why do you what do you think has caused that? Is it just you know I understand I think it's easy for people to conceptualize why new VC funds are getting are getting raised. There's just so much capital going into VC, and you can make the argument that it's provided better returns over the past 10, 20 years than public equities. You know, some some people will debate me, but I, yeah. I, I think there's you know there's logical reasons for why that's happening. But I guess your sense from your conversations as to the rise in corporate VCs over the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I think the data even proves it out, right? You go to PitchBook, and I think the the amount of new corporate venture funds that have launched, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's significantly higher since when we launched Evolve Ventures. I think the other trends that you see, what's also interesting in the corporate world is in terms of valuation, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the adage is that corporate venture folks tend to be a little bit more um, or less valuation sensitive. And I think that the data in PitchBook um, bears that out is that, you know, deals that are led by corporate VCs tend to be higher um, in terms of valuation than traditional financial venture capital firms. I think that, you know, some of it, what spurred it is, is obviously, um, you know, just the broader ecosystem about, you know, the performance of venture. The other thing, too, is I think a lot of these these corporates are just struggling with innovation, right, Um, because they're heads down. And, you know, how do you bring in kind of innovative companies and learnings into the broader organization, I think, drives a lot of it. And every corporate venture fund is a little different. It gets back to where are you on that spectrum? Are you purely financial, financially driven? Google Ventures, right? Um, I would say. Or are you purely strategic where you need a deal in place before you make an investment? Maybe it's a feeder for M&A and you want to put in, you know, right of first refusals and term sheets. Everyone's a little bit different in terms of, you know, how they want to leverage corporate venture. Um, we feel like we've got a nice, healthy balance of the financial ROI, but make no mistake, like we, we have to bring in companies that are going to provide value to Kraft Heinz in some way. You mentioned the valuation, almost insensitivity around around VCs. Uh, just to just to back up or zoom in on that a little bit. What's the reason for that? Why are corporate VCs typically less sensitive towards valuation? It's a, it's a really good question, Matt. I don't know if I'm going to have a perfect answer for, for you, but I think it has something to do with the incentive structure, right? Because if I'm just playing with the firm's money and I don't have skin in the game, right? Like, ah, cool, right? Like it's a cool deal. It's strategically important, you know? Um, you know, I know what the multiples are. Maybe we're willing to go up a little bit because there's a little bit of, you know, maybe potentially FOMO. I think with us is, you know, because, you know, Bill and I have our own money in the fund, it's a little unique. Like, like in Bill's, Bill's worked in venture for 15 years, you know, between Comcast and Lightbank. Um, and so we complement each other really well. And I think this is a, this is a time where you've got to be really disciplined within food, because one of the things that we see is we see people coming into food that haven't been in food um, because of the ESG components and climate change. So not only are you getting pure food folks, right, of which there's some really good funds. It's a really tight knit group of folks, some of which are in Chicago. 
And then you've got um, ESG funds are now like, oh, well, food can impact ESG. And then you have financial funds that are like, wow, Beyond Meat did really well. I should be spending more time in this category. So it's kind of a perfect storm of increased valuations um, within the category. On the topic of valuations, I think it's on it's top of everyone's mind these days. I think being based in the Midwest and and having a few years um, of sort of historical looking data, is it fair to say that the valuation creep has affected companies even in the Chicagoland area, even in the Midwest, where typically valuations have always been a little bit more you know, a little bit more reasonable as compared to New York or or San Francisco. How have you seen that sort of evolve? Oh, there you go. A little pun there. Just oh, yeah, the name perfect. of the firm right there. Perfect. That question. Nice I mean, plug. God. Uh, <laughs> perfect. How have you seen that sort of evolve over the past <laughs> few years here in the Midwest? Yeah. I mean, and even more, more broadly, I, I think you're seeing that valuation creep increase everywhere. Um, just because you have supply demand challenges, there's a lot of capital chasing, you know, um, a subset of deals, which is going to drive valuations higher. What we have seen is valuations relative, you know, in the Midwest and elsewhere um, are still at a discount vis-a-vis the Bay Area, right? Um, because I think just proximity of funds. You know, we've been really fortunate in that, you know, we've we've looked at deals, for example, that are YC companies, um, but they're not located in the Bay Area. Um, they're located outside of the Bay Area. And we feel like because they're not in the, the craziness of Silicon Valley, that the valuation may be a little bit more reasonable. But I think just more broadly, I think that they're increasing everywhere. I think they're increasing relative to maybe where they were before, right? So um, they're still up, but you know it's still at a discount to you know the Bay Area for sure. You also have you know spent um, a lot of your life in the Chicagoland area. You, you grew up here. Um, you know you spent a good deal of your professional life here. Um, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on the growth of the Chicago tech ecosystem at, you know, over the past two decades and mm-hmm. how you view its sort of prognosis for the future. What are some of the most exciting sort of attributes that the industry, the Chicago landscape has going for it? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, we're, 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 we're guns for punishment, Matt, due to, you know, our lovely weather that we have here in the winter and the fact that our state's on the verge of bankruptcy, um, you know, but yet I'm still here. So um, I'm a Chicago guy for better or for worse. And, you know, I've had kind of a front row seat to the evolution of the, you know, the Chicago tech landscape over the last, you know, 15 years. I would say at Grubhub, I think you, you, you're seeing some interesting things occur. When I was at Grubhub, you had some really good companies, you know, that were starting out, you know, Groupon, you know, um, you can take shots at Groupon, but Groupon, I think, gave Chicago some notoriety um, back in the day. You had you had us and you had others and you had venture funds that at the time were sizable for Chicago, but they were still 20 to 30 million dollar funds. And I felt like, you know, when I was at Grubhub, you know, the entrepreneurial um, world in Chicago was, you know, the VC the amount of funds in the capital bill didn't match the entrepreneurial activity in Chicago. 
right? So Grubhub, we raised from benchmark capital. Um, there were other companies at that time that took money from the coast. And frankly, getting taking money from benchmark capital at any point in your life cycle is is phenomenal valuation or validation, I should say. But you know, I think there's been a change now in the VC world. Funds are now 75 to 100 million dollars, right? There's more capital that's available. I think you have a broader diversification of startups in Chicago, which is attractive to various investors. On the food sort of on the food side of things, we have the inverse of the problem that I experienced back at Grubhub back in the day, which is we have very good food-focused VC funds in Chicago. The startup activity in food doesn't match the capital in Chicago, period, unfortunately. And I think it will get there. Um, but, you know, between us, Valor, S2G, Cultivian, Bluestein, Mondelez, Cleveland Avenue, there is over about $1.5 billion of venture funding focused on food and ag in Chicago. And the startups just aren't there. And I, and I want that to change. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, it's such an interesting point too. I think, you know, there's, it's always fascinated me about Chicago's ascendance and the industries that have, you know, led the forefront in that respect. And um, I think it's just, there's a mix here. There's a recipe here for food tech. And I can't really put my name on, finger on it, but you know, you see Talk, you see Tovala, you see Grubhub, Factor 75. It seems like this, this ecosystem in particular, in some of the same ways for transportation and logistics, it just feels like the recipe is there for a really successful backdrop to raise or to create some type of food tech company. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you see that with Factor, Tavala, Farmer's Fridge, um, Nature's Find, which a lot of people don't know about, but it's just raised massive amounts of capital from Breakthrough Energy. Um, you know, I think they've raised something close to $500 million that a lot of people aren't, aren't really aware of. The, the foundation is here for like a food tech explosion. Like, you know, and I think that the the city needs to coalesce a bit around food tech. And I think COVID has presented some challenges because we're not meeting in person, right? But, you know, you've got Don Thompson at Cleveland Avenue, right? You have folks at, you know, a lot of the firms that I've mentioned. You have corporates here. ADM, right, is another company that I mentioned, which is a huge fermentation company, which all the, a lot of these innovative food tech companies need fermentation capabilities. The, the ecosystem is certainly here. I think we need to structure it better. Maybe this is going to be very top of mind, Matt, after this podcast, right? Like we've got to coalesce a group um, to really build the momentum that you see in, in transportation, right? In, in those sorts of companies. But it's certainly here. What I would say is the next generation of food, some of it's biotech driven, which we don't have those capabilities. You're going to find those more in the Bay Area and Southern California, just through the companies that exist here. But, you know, like I want to see those successes at Tavala and Farmer's Fridge and, you know, Factor and those entrepreneurs start other businesses. It's starting. It's the long game. 
but there's the foundation that we just need to leverage and we I don't think we've leveraged it to date, but it, it certainly exists. I think this podcast is going to be the catalyst. It's going to be the spark. We're going to get this, know, yeah. uh, we're going to get this promoted. We're going to get it get it in the ears of everybody who needs to hear this. And uh, th- this could be the very beginning of a of a, of a beautiful uh, beautiful transcendence or ascendance. Um, I have to ask in our in our in our closing minutes. Um, you know, I mentioned at the top, uh, we are both, you know, alumnus of Loyola Academy. We have a, a decent amount of Gen Z, you know, listeners and Gen Z in general, just to me, I can't put my finger on it, but it seems like there's such an interest in venture capital from that cohort. Um, and it, almost to the point where it's, you know, the, it, it's been given a sort of a moniker of just Gen Z VC, um, which rhymes. So I give them credit. They do have that going for them. You know, anything that rhymes is just going to stick. Um, but I'm curious if you have any kind of advice to people in their early careers, you know, even if high school kids, college kids, people right out of college who want to get into investing, want to get into venture capital later on or make that move uh, or get involved. What would be some advice you would have for some of the, I guess, the younger members of the audience? Yeah, I think I think a couple things. I, I think, you know, look for mentorship opportunities if you're at a point in your career where you have the opportunity to, to leverage those. I mean, I got a lot of value being a mentor at Techstars and, and even way back in the day when it was Accelerate Labs, right? In year one, two, and three, which probably dates myself. But, you know, getting, working with startups and being kind of exposed to that DNA, I think is incredibly helpful. Um, secondly, I would say that talk to as many people in the venture ecosystem as possible. When I was, you know, looking for opportunities and looking to leave Tribune, I probably talked to about a hundred people and met with at coffees in Chicago, and that was incredibly valuable because I still keep in touch with those people. And as you build your network out, you start off by asking, like, "Tell me about your experience adventure," right? But then you build your network so much where you then start providing value because of the network that you have. There's like a moment where it shifts and you're not a taker, but you're also a giver, right? That to me is critically important because those are the people you're going to need in your career. And I would tell you that, you know, when I was at Booth, you know, Matt, you know this, like we pay how much, right? For Booth, if you want to learn about, yeah, if you want to learn about a particular uh, area, you could do that a lot cheaper than what you know, you're, you're paying and what I paid for booth to me, it's about the brand and the network. Like I probably talked to like, seriously, probably about 150 people, booth alums in their, in areas I was interested in. And I would tell you within my role now, my experience at Grubhub, I could probably count on one hand, the number of people that have reached out to me to be like, Hey, I know you're a booth alum, or I see you're doing this. Do you have a few minutes to chat? Nobody does it. And so the bar is really low. If you hustle, you stand out um, and people will know you and you'll learn a lot in the process and then you can help people out. So I've always been a big believer. Read as much as you can from a diverse set of um, points of view. You know, just hustle, network, talk to as many people as possible because they'll remember you and they'll go to bat for you when your name comes up at some point in the future. I think that's incredible advice. And I think it's it's such a such a truism that you just learn over time and over each step of your career. And, you know, one thing somebody told me too on this podcast was, you know, if you're reaching out to a hundred people, not all of them are going to be lifelong mentors and, and, you know, connections and, but you double down on the ones that you really connect with and, and you ensure that those relationships last. Um, 
So Steve, on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. This has been incredible. Um, your first loyal alum, the first corporate VC. Uh, we checked a lot of boxes today. So thank you so much. And I can't wait to have you on again in the future. Yeah, I appreciate it, Matt. It was, it was fantastic. I appreciate you having me on. It's always nice to chat with a fellow Rambler and, and Booth, soon to be alum. So a lot of, um, a lot of connection points. <laughs> Steve, go Ramblers. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Matt. Talk to you.